I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is the leader of one of London's oldest independent broking houses. Greg Collins is CEO of Miller, which via major new investment has just extricated itself from the Willis Towers Watson Group. In this podcast, we get right to the heart of why the firm's innovative experiment with Big Three ownership didn't work out and what this wholesale specialty broker plans to do with its newfound freedom. Greg comes across as someone completely on top of his game and speaks like he's had a weight lifted off his shoulders. It's refreshing to hear. Tune in for insights into Miller's growth strategy, the reinsurance broking landscape, technological and cultural modernisation, and why Miller won't be doing anything to upset its wholesale relationships. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Well, Greg, congratulations on doing the Sinven GIC deal and winning your independence. Now that's complete, can you just run us through the deal? Thank you, Mark. Yes, of course, I'd be delighted to do that. As you can imagine, it's been a pretty complicated process, not least because of the pandemic in extracting ourselves from Willis Towers Watson. So this whole process actually began in 2019 and then got arrested because of the pandemic and the slowdown in global debt markets and um, all the other issues that faced us in that first half of 2020. And so we were only really able to kickstart the whole process from the summer of 2020. And over a period of time, we spoke to, as you can imagine, a whole host of different prospective buyers for the business, mostly in the sort of PE, sovereign wealth, pension fund type territory, but also some other strategics in the marketplace as well, just to look at whether or not there was potential there. So there were a few key things really that we were looking for. Somebody who would join us in aspiring to maintain our values and the way that Miller has behaved over a very long period of time, which is in a culture of partnership. And we also wanted somebody who was going to take a longer term view of the business. We weren't really looking for a traditional PE owner who might be looking to spin the business in three or four years time. That just doesn't suit the way that we operate or our clients operate. And I think creates a great deal of instability for your people as well. 
So we were actually really pleased when we did the deal with Simbel and GIC. Two things are particularly important about that. So this is a 50-50 investment for them. We are the first investment for Sinven into their strategic financials fund, which is a new fund, which has a longer term date attached to it. So it's going to be an eight to 10 year fund. So the investors who are investing in that fund recognize that this is about building value over time. So this is all about value-led growth for us. And Sinven and GIC are totally bought into that. The other interesting thing is, of course, that GIC as the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore have a history of holding investments for a much longer period of time than that. So there is entirely the possibility that GIC would remain a long-term Miller shareholder and Sinven would extract themselves at the appropriate point in time and we'd find new capital to replace that. So that, those were the critical things, really. So it's a 50-50 venture between uh, Sinven and GIC with an eight to 10-year initial funding period for those that are invested in the fund. So the instructions from the UN is, I presume, are to grow. Grow, yeah. It's all all about value-led growth. That's what we're looking for. So we're looking both for value for our clients, value for our people, and also value now for our shareholders as well. But it's not all about what we do today. It's about building the business over that medium term, over the eight to 10 year period which I think gives us a much better opportunity to build a stable platform than one where you're growing for the sake of it in a very short window. Are you talking about the quality of growth being different from the sort of quality of growth you might get if you had a shorter time frame? And could you sort of run us through that thinking? Is there a philosophy of higher quality growth that some growth is better than others? Look, I mean, I think any idiot can grow top line. It doesn't take much to build a top line business. And many, many brokers have been there before. And you've seen the consequences because what you build quickly often takes many, many years to unwind, whether that's because you've got enormous runoff, you've got claims issues, you've got debt issues where you can't get premium paid from parts of the world where it's more difficult. And so that's not what we're about at all. We're about a sustained, profitable platform, growth platform that allows us to build value over the medium term. So we're not looking simply for top line growth. This has to have profit attached to it as well. Otherwise, it's no value to anybody. And at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we are providing the very best service that we can to our customers as well. That's the most important thing at the end of the day. So it's not just about, of course, it's about top line growth. And yes, we want to build the business more aggressively than we've been able to in the willis Towers watson period, but we're not just going to grow for the sake of it. So would I be right to assume that you value organic growth more over inorganic growth? And would you rule out any inorganic growth, but therefore be likely to be sort of bolt on rather than anything transformational? I think that's more likely. So two things really, Mark. First of all, it is about organic growth. Miller's business model over 120 years, and this is our 120th year of operation this year, has always been about organic growth. We've made very, very few acquisitions in that period of time. But clearly there are opportunities today, both in London and elsewhere, to build out through acquisition. We like bolt-on acquisitions that either give us more of what we've got already or take us into specialty lines of business that we're not in, whether that's in London or internationally. But that's not to discount a larger acquisition that might give us you know, accelerated growth in a particular market or, or product line. Just what you mentioned about the Willis era, and, and obviously that has now fully come to an end. Willis's sale of you is probably the last attempt by a big three, last really serious attempt and very credible attempt by a big three broker to do something different and to own an independent wholesaler at arm's length. 
And so what is your report card really on your time and reflection on, on your time as a Willis Group company? That's a good question and quite a difficult one to answer. We did the deal with what was then Willis back in 2015. Of course, we'd been talking to them for a couple of years before that. And within a very short space of the time of us concluding our transaction with them, they themselves were then embroiled in a fairly complex merger with Towers Watson. And within a pretty short space of time, really, their strategic priorities began to shift. And the model that had been created by a management team led by Dominic Castley were no longer there. So the rationale for us and they doing what we did began to dissipate quite quickly. And we didn't get the delivery of the things that we needed to make the deal work. So it became pretty clear to us over a period of time that the sort of the core rationale for why we'd done it was beginning to disappear quite quickly. And the more mature that the Willis Towers Watson model became, the clearer it became to us that we were no longer a strategic priority and that having that independent wholesale capability was not what they were looking for. They were obviously growing into a, a much different marketplace. So that's why it became clear to us that we needed an elegant exit from the Willis Towers Watson world. And actually, they agreed, the leadership team at Willis Towers Watson agreed with us that that was likely to be the case. And indeed, of course, when the Aon announcement was made, it became even you know, an imperative really for us to uh, separate ourselves from the Willis Towers Watson model, because it would have been wholly unsustainable for us to operate within that new Aon world. You mentioned something you just said about some things that weren't able to be forthcoming because of the change of strategy or change of direction of Willis when it became Willis Towers Watson. What were those things, any specifics? The critical piece of the model when we sat down with Dominic and his team back in 2014 was that they would transfer to our platform their wholesale specialty businesses, predominantly based in London. And as you can imagine, if you go back to the old Willis Faber and Dumar days and the Unison network, and Willis still had and probably still has a substantial portfolio of non-network delivered business, so business coming to them wholesale from other brokers. And their distribution model was changing and therefore they had conflict in channels across the world. We were an ideal solution for them to be able to transfer that business. And a few of those did happen at the time of the transaction with them. The most notable was SCL kidnap and ransom business that they owned. But of course, within a very short space of time, along came Towers Watson and their view of the world shifted and that was no longer a priority. So they couldn't deliver those elements, which meant that actually we were not able to grow as quickly as we would have wanted. I fundamentally believe that scale matters for a wholesale independent broker, whether in London or elsewhere, you've got to have scale and you've got to be able to provide a full range of products and service to your clients. And this would have rapidly accelerated our scale in the marketplace. So when it didn't happen, it just meant that we were inside a business model where, albeit our clients were extremely loyal and we continued to grow with them, it became more of an uphill challenge, particularly in the United States of America, where there was clear conflict between the Willis Towers Watson world and, and the world of the independent retailers and wholesalers. And is it a relief now to be when anyone asks you, everyone says they're independent and you can say, I, we are absolutely independent. Was there ever an impediment during the time? We always felt independent from the Willis Towers Watson value proposition. We had entirely separate processes, systems, our own board. And when it was never a likelihood or a possibility that we would ever have been integrated into that business, it did create headwinds. There's no doubt about that, particularly in North America. So being free from that now 
certainly allows us to compete more vigorously in that market space, unencumbered by any shadow, if you like, of a large strategic owner. So now you've got your independence back and you've mentioned about you've got good new long-term investors and you've mentioned about wanting to expand more aggressively than you have done in the past. So how's that going to work out and what the best opportunities for growth there are in for Miller in 2021? So I think there are a number of things. The first, of course, Mark, is that the coming together of Willis Towers, Watson and Aon is undoubtedly creating dislocation in both organisations. And whilst many, many of the individuals who operate in both those firms will, I'm sure, thrive within the enlarged Aon organisation, there are going to be many who won't. We think we are a natural home for any number of those individuals who may be looking for a slightly more entrepreneurial environment to operate in. So that's the first thing is I think we will be looking to hold ourselves out as a, as a home for disaffected people working in the larger global brokers. And there's always a steady flow from those to the independent sector looking for a home. That's obviously our first priority because that is going to increase as the Aon and willis Towers watson merger becomes a reality. So we'll be looking to do that. The second thing is that we want to build out our platform. So both, and particularly in the reinsurance space, you'll remember that we had a vibrant reinsurance business in the days before Willis came along, and it became untenable for us to try and compete with Willis Re whilst we were inside the same family. And we sold a Miller reinsurance business to Willis Re back in, in, in 2015. Well, obviously now unencumbered by that and seeing the opportunities that are going to come as a result of Willis Towers, Watson and Aon coming together and indeed JLT going into Marsh, there is undoubtedly space for specialty reinsurance capabilities from the independent sector. And again, we believe that we're ideally suited to doing that. And as you will know, we've already begun to build out to sort of reignite our Bermuda platform. We were in Bermuda in the old days and uh, we will be back there with a vengeance now. So we've started to recruit into that marketplace and we think we've got a really vibrant opportunity there to build and grow our business. So we'll be looking to build out our reinsurance in London and in Bermuda. We hope that we will have hires in London as well in the not too distant future. So we're looking to really, really push out our insurance capabilities. We're not looking to be all things to all men. You'll know that we bought Alston Gala or AG a couple of years ago, and they already have a reinsurance capability and are particularly renowned in the ILS, ILW space, which is an area that we want to focus on as well. So specialty lines supporting our insurance business and selectively in key locations around the world. So we build out our reinsurance business. We'll also increase our geographical footprint as well. So we've already got offices in Europe. We'll be looking to expand our European capabilities. The advent of Brexit has meant that we now have a substantial portfolio of our business actually sitting on the mainland of Europe. And we will be looking to support and expand that over the coming period of time. We're also in Singapore and the Far East. We had a network of offices again, pre-Willis coming along in 2015. And we will be looking to rekindle a number of those in the coming year or two as well. So we'll build out from our sort of core hub of Singapore into a broader Asian offering as well. Those will be our, our sort of key areas for focus, London, Bermuda, Europe, Singapore. And then selectively, we will look at Latin America for growth opportunities, because obviously it's a growth territory. And we think there may be some opportunities for us, again, selectively to build in the reinsurance space, Latin America. 
What I can tell you, though, is that, that we will not have people on the ground in the United States of America. We've been very clear about is that our clients are the clients that we deal with in the retail, uh, wholesale and MGA space in North America. And we will not muddy the water of distribution in the United States. That's great. And, so, and you'd be serving that mostly either from London and Bermuda. Exactly that. Yes, that's right. Back to the question about reinsurance. You're going to be focused. You're going to be. You're going to play to your strengths in the specialty, and you're not going to be rocking up at big tenders for you know huge multinational insurance company programs, etc. You know, up against the big two or big three, depending on what the competition regulators uh, say. But lots of other independents have also obviously taken the same cue from, particularly from the Aon Willis announcement last year. Do you think you can all succeed in your own way, or you're going to be slightly slitting each other's throats? Look, I think there's plenty of room in a global reinsurance market, the size and scale that it exists. It has clearly consolidated over time. The advent, you know, the coming along of the mergers that have taken place have created opportunities. There are a small number at the end of the day of independent brokers who I think have credible reinsurance platforms. I happen and literally a handful, you could name them on the fingers of one hand, probably. And I think there's room for all of those to thrive in that marketplace. We'll all have slightly different business models. We'll all be going after slightly different aspects of the business. But yeah, I, th- I think so. It's possible that somebody will come out of the pack and build a, a substantial global reinsurance business to compete with the big two. I think that would take some doing. And I think if you're going to do it, it's very difficult to ignore the United States in that. And therefore, you've got to build a very credible reinsurance platform in the USA, which is difficult to do without doing it through an acquisition. So yeah, so I think there's plenty to play for for us. Greg, it was interesting about your the, your strategy of not wanting to put any boots on the ground in North America or in, in the USA specifically. Yeah. Why is that? In that obviously there are wholesale brokers operating in the US who are very clearly not out of a few major hubs, who are very clearly wholesale only brokers who only serve independent brokers in spread around those states. Why would it muddy the waters to turn up in New York or Chicago or Atlanta or somewhere in California, for example? As long as you were clearly stated to be, we are only a wholesaler and we're here to service you. The difficulty is that once you're there, the temptation is to start to spread your tentacles into all sorts of different market spaces, whether that's to go direct to a customer base or indeed to access retail brokers that would then be cutting out the wholesale brokers who might otherwise be the beneficiaries of that business. And because the wholesalers have done such a good job of consolidating the relationships with the retail brokers in North America, and again, because scale matters, acquisition costs matter, I think it's a pretty tough hill to climb to build a credible operation in North America with scale that would make it worth the investment. And I think we're much, much better off supporting our existing clients who are the wholesale and retail brokers in North America from London and Bermuda to help them to access global markets where they need it. It's a much better model. It's very clear. We all know where we are in in the puzzle. There's no confusion. Pat Ryan did a great job of consolidating global insurance broking. And 10, 11 years ago, he set off to with RSG and has done a fantastic job of helping to consolidate the wholesale insurance broking out of the state. So is that really your recognition that that is a job that's already been done effectively and you need to collaborate with these big two, big three of the US wholesale scene and it's not worth coming in to try and compete with them? Is that, is that the point? I think that's exactly right. I think the horse has bolted 
I think it'd be absolute folly to try and compete with those businesses which have built the phenomenal franchises across the United States of America, continue to build and grow. And I think they'd uh, chew us up pretty quickly if we tried to impede, you know, to step on their toes. And they are fantastic business partners for us already. But we think there's much greater growth opportunity for us working with them than trying to compete with them. I think that would be madness. Do you think that that sort of game being over in the US uh, wholesale is something that will play long-term strategically? Do you think that they will, because they've game over in the biggest market in the world, does it mean that there's almost inevitability that they will become the global wholesale brokers very long-term? I don't think so. I think operating a wholesale broker, which is a very specific, because of the way the ENS regulations laws operate in North America, a very state-driven insurance legislation, filing forms, and as we know, it's a very regulated marketplace. I think it lends itself naturally to the growth of wholesale brokers. And I think there's plenty more for them to do in that territory, which means there's plenty more for us to do in supporting them with products and services that allow them to compete and grow and to provide the service to their clients. So the game is up. If you were trying to compete with them now, with the three very large wholesale brokers in North America, but there are other regional wholesale brokers in North America who do a very, very good job and provide great value to their clients as well. So it's not only those three, because of course, North America is such a big marketplace. But I do think it would be very difficult for anybody to sort of go into North America and actually compete head on with them as a wholesale broker. I think if you did, you would certainly be cutting off whatever supply chain you'd had from them in the past into the London market. The United States has a lot going for it. But I think it's a very different for one of those brokers to try and build an equivalent model of wholesale elsewhere in the world, I think would be very difficult to do. I think because of the language difficulties, the global scale required, it's not a model that lends itself to that, unlike insurance brokers. One of those things that those very large wholesale brokers have done very well is slot in MGAs, specialty MGAs into their into their organization so that they've got total distribution effectively available to them for, for the more slightly more commoditized things or you know they've got alternatives in-house. Obviously, we've had a phenomenal decade of MGA growth all over the world, also in the London market. Is that one of the strings you want to add to your bow as part of your growth model? Do you see opportunities there in, in MGAs? It's part of our thinking. It's not the top of our priority list. There are clearly still, in London at least, some very good underwriters who may well be disaffected with whatever it is that they're doing and will be looking to build their own platforms. And I think it's a shame in a way that they have to go into an MJ model to do that, that there isn't a, a more structured way, whether in Lloyd's or elsewhere, that allows them to thrive as entrepreneurs in the marketplace. Obviously, capital is more constricted at the moment. Acquisition costs are under pressure. So we know that for many, many of the independent MGAs operating at the moment, particularly in London, that that hill is getting steeper to climb. So I think it's certainly enabled by technology. And the smarter technology gets, easier it will be to have that alternative distribution through an MJ platform. But I think you've got to have a very clear proposition. I think it's got to be very specialised. Uh, you've got to play into the niches. And I think trying to be all things to all men as, as a London market MGA, I think is going to be increasingly difficult to do. And we've seen a number who've struggled over time to make it work. So it's not straightforward, I would say. It's clearly good for building out your distribution, gives you alternative distribution platform. At the end of the day, most of them are looking for an exit strategy. So as a broker, if you're going to own an MGA, you want to own it for the long term. You want it to be part of your growth strategy. And the nature of a lot of these MGAs is they're looking to build independence and many of them get sold off 
to the capital that has uh, made them what they are. It's complicated, I would say, at the moment, and that's not to say that we won't do it, but we need to find the right opportunity. We've always avoided putting Miller's own business through an MGA. We think, again, that there are you know, potentially too many conflicts, albeit in the wholesale broker review, the regulator seems to give it a green light. I personally still feel it's a potential conflict and I'd rather us operate without that conflict. I think it's very clear to our clients what we're doing for them. That's really interesting, Greg. And what you, something you said during that, that last piece was very interesting. We've got lots of technological initiatives going on. We've got some semi-automatic underwriting initiatives going on with the key syndicate at Lloyd's, for example. So do you think automatic broking and that kind of distribution is the response to that? And as you say, it might be the key to unlocking that distribution rather than the MGA channel, for example. Yes. I mean, automatic broking is slightly more complicated than follow capacity, particularly in the Lloyd's market. And of course, brokers have provided line slips and facilities or broker facilities that have allowed automatic binding of capacity to sit behind lead capacity in the marketplace for as long as I've been in the market. But it's quite a different proposition to have an automatic bind of a piece of business without it having been pre-underwritten by somebody. So the answer is that technology releases some of that capability, particularly as we get down the route much more of artificial intelligence and robotics and the use of learning and intelligent computer models that allow it to assess and to make assumptions around pricing and models. So the more data you have, the stronger your proposition. And of course, brokers have very rich pools of data that they can bring together to the benefit of their clients. So I do think that there is absolutely the possibility to meld the capital and the distribution together. Whether it needs to be through an MJ or not, I think time will tell. I think the model will continue to evolve. But I think there could be some quite interesting things come out of the next five years or so as that technology continues to advance at an extremely rapid rate. And I think it will change all our lives. Yes, a great time to have new investment, new thinking, new independence, and at this time of really accelerated technological change and also reform in the London market and other places. What are you doing when you're sitting down and you're trying to work out what the wholesale reinsurance and specialty broker of the future is going to look like? And what are you trying to do at the moment to make sure that you're building that so that it's ready for when, when that future arrives? Personally, I think that the London market, the London, it's a global hub. It's, it's unique on the planet in terms of the pooling of resource, the talent, the capability that sits in the London market as a whole, whether that's in the insurance or the reinsurance space. So I think we have an enviable position to be able to build and grow from there, but we have to do it intelligently. We have to do it as a market. And one of the very few things that's good things that's come out of COVID, of course, is this rapid acceleration of a digital placement in, in the London market. It's probably given us a 10-year kickstart over where we would have been if it hadn't happened. And I think it's taken us on a path that we can't go back from now. So we're only going to build and accelerate from here. The trick, of course, is to have technology that works for everybody, that's smart, that's adaptable, and that, that is seamless and end-to-end -end through the processes. And of course, that's what the whole of the energy of the market is going towards at the moment, and particularly with Lloyd's leading the way on the market of the future. We've got to make sure that these platforms are, are capable of end-to-end underwriting and processing. So I think technology will definitely accelerate that. And with these global broken goliaths roaming around and eating each other, do you see technology as a good sort of slingshot for you, for the David, to sort of take a few pot shots at the goliath? Because it can help accelerate and, and make you seem bigger than you are, more powerful than you are, if you embrace that 
quickly and, and in an agile way, which might be more difficult for them to do so. Yes, I definitely think that. I think the benefits in automating the transfer and flow of information, I think, will be really critical to the future of the smaller brokers and will allow us to compete very, very effectively. And of course, 10 years ago, building technology cost a huge amount of money. It's getting more affordable. The technology is more adaptable. You've got many, many smaller fintech type firms, insurtech firms who are able to adapt and build and bring rapid technology shift to the market at a relatively inexpensive cost. So I think in a world where everybody has that capability, it's the application of what you've got that makes the difference. So as always, it'll be the innovation of the use of the technology that allows brokers like Miller to thrive. And I think if you're too big, it's very, very difficult. Turning a super tanker is a much harder thing to do than turning a speedboat. And so we firmly believe that we're in a position where through smart use of technology, rapid adoption of technology, learning and learning to fail quickly and moving on is a really important part of what we do. And I think we can compete very effectively on a worldwide basis with significant impacts, but we will stick to our knitting. We're a specialty broker. We're not going to try and be all things to all men. So would you say, therefore, it's much more of a cultural question? It's more about your own willingness to want to change and to challenge the way you do things yourself, to do things in a new way, more than the actual technology itself? That's a very, very good point, Martin. I think that's exactly right. I think that the challenge is, whether it's about Miller changing or the market changing, it's all about the culture. We know that we resist change if we can, that we'd rather the status quo was maintained. And I think the organisations that have a culture that's adaptable and flexible and people who are willing to, to shift and change will be the winners in the future because we recognise that all of us, that the world of work is changing, whether that's just where we sit to do our work or how we do our work. We want people to be able to do things that they thoroughly enjoy and get value from, really. So you've got to be adaptable. You have to be adaptable. So that's the culture you're trying to build at Miller, I presume? Absolutely, yeah. So we want two things for our people. We want a highly inclusive workplace. So we want people to be able to come to work and be themselves and not feel threatened or undermined in any way. And secondly, we want people who are open to change, who are flexible and willing to work with us and lead with us through a process of change, I think is an absolutely critically important part of this. Greg, I really, I really enjoyed your super tanker and speedboat analogy. It seemed very apt when we've discovered recent, in recent times that you know sometimes super tankers are large ships are wider than the canals that they're travelling down, which seems it's fairly obvious, but um, it's only obvious when you bump into the bank and get stuck. So you know, we'll have visions of you whizzing up and down the Suez Canal in your speedboat, Greg. But thank you so much for being so frank in all your answers and and so concise and and precise. And I wish you every success in your newfound independence and and your growth mission of the next decade. And do make sure that you book a time slot to come and speak to us again and give us an update. That's great, Mark. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, I do indeed look forward to having uh, another chat with you in the future. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much, Greg. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. 
Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.